Are you always procrastinating? Are you looking for a real connection? Do you find it harder to keep going? Do you feel like no one's there to really listen? Are you drowning in work? Are you always stressing about what to eat? Do you get too worried about your and your family's health? Do you find yourself grappling with peer pressure? Do you feel like you're being watched or judged all the time? Ask the experts only on Women Influencers Talk Show. get into something even faster and bigger and we all miss this opportunity to learn from them so that was the thinking behind this event and thanks to raman's push and sunil's follow ups and things like that we made it happen so thanks everyone for being here i'm sure there is a tremendous amount of take home value uh, once we conclude so over to you anjana shok take it worthwhile for uh, everybody so this is the plan one is we're going to dispense with you know formal opening statements and introductions and stuff like that uh, you know sort of uh, we'll, we'll go through that as it goes the way we will set it up is that it's as if ashok and i have been having a conversation just a little bit of introduction uh, ashok has done many many more things than i have but we followed a broadly similar background a large amount of time in infosys Uh, then he turned around two very large companies, very very large companies. The last one being uh, Conduent, uh, which had 90,000 employees. Uh, now he sits on the board of Kroger, a 70 billion dollar company. Uh, you know, myself, I was with Mindry, and then I turned around, uh, you know, two other companies. Uh, my as we were preparing, so my daughter said, "So you're going to talk to Ashok Uncle?" Yeah, yeah. So uh, what are you going to do? You're going to start off by saying that Ashok Uncle, you don't have a job, I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you going to do? <laughs> So both of us uh, are currently. I'm a full-time homemaker, and Ashok is full-time cook. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna now break. Just we're gonna move full speed in, as if we are having a deep conversation, and a curtain opens. We're not gonna wait till the end for question and answers. Please, you know, come in. Give us maybe 10 minutes, and then question and answer. Just open it up. So so conversation is going on, and it is open now. Okay. So Ashok, I was thinking about the Indian IT industry. Right? The reason why all of us are here is because of leadership development and growth of companies. We're trying to think through that. The Indian IT industry, to me, is a petri dish of <coughs> management because between 1995 and 2000, so many companies started up. You didn't need any innovation. You didn't need to do some great product. you just needed leadership and you needed operations and so many thousands of companies started including every business house they had the same access to capital they had the same access to customers and same access to people few companies did well thousands died what did they get right like this sochcast tune in for more with the sochcast app from the google play store so i mean i mean the history of the indian it services company predates the mid 90s so most of these companies started somewhere in the early 80s if you take the infosys the wipros etc uh, but really came into their own around the the y2k uh, phase which is when it sort of attracted global attention there is a, a quirk of nature that you write a program and you suddenly find that you didn't get the dates right <laughs> and then you have to go and outsource it to somebody else and say can you fix this for me? so you know you to take you you, know, you guys are all entrepreneurs so you have obviously taken advantage of every sort of asymmetry that's been in the market 
Well, I would say that one of the key things, I mean, if, I, if I reflect back, and, and not to make this into a plug for Infosys, any of those guys who became successful, there are some key elements that <coughs> uh, resulted in the success of this. One, I would say, was uh, India sort of invested very heavily in engineering education. I mean, if you remember, like, you know, I used to go to school in India in the mid-80s. There was a plethora of engineering colleges, donation, not donation, government, etc. So there was a huge army of engineers, but not that you need engineers to court. It's probably the wrong people to get to court. Uh, you need more arts people, but that's another debate we can have if you keep inviting me to places like this. The second is that we had... Uh, telecommunication opened up. So if you remember Sam Petroda and all of that good stuff happened. So there was, you know, when I first came to this country and I was, I remember sitting across a client, Fidelity, and I was saying, we can do this work in India. And they were like, how? I said, like, telecom, you go to sleep, give me the work, get up in the morning, and it'll be done by the next morning. And they said, they were like, perplexed. I said, how, they, how is that even possible? So I think that's one reason. But I think the more important um, sort of consideration is if you look at companies and you talked about you know, uh, uh, corporate houses setting up. Infosys, and I'll take that example since I spent most of my time there, uh, had a single-minded purpose. It had no corporate background. <clears throat> it was not a, uh, a big corporate house in India. It didn't come with any baggage or, or and therefore the leverage that the Nambanis or the Birlas or the Tatas, etc. would have, uh, no offense to their history and legacy. Uh, and it fired the imagination of people in India that a bunch of guys seven guys who basically had a very average, if you will, uh, background. I mean, Murthy, for example, is the middle child of 11 children of a school teacher in Mysore. Excuse me, outside Mysore. So there is a lot of gumption, and there's a lot of uh, assumed pride to the, to the point of arrogance, intellectual arrogance, as uh, Murthy would say, to be able to embark on a process. Today, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur, you have you know, the, the Princeton Accelerator, you go to, you go to Thai, you know, you, you, you say you have an idea, I work for private equity, uh, so, you know, there's tons of money sloshing around, dearth of ideas, you say, I have an idea, boom, I'll, I'll fund you. So the gumption of doing this at a time, so that was one thing. The other important thing is he surrounded himself with people who were discreetly different, yet complementary. So the seven of them had nothing in common. So as you sort of look to build teams, and that's a lesson, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm going to say something and I'm going to extract a, a sort of a message, is that it's very important to sort of look at people who, you know, are not like you. They're completely different people. You can either build that skill like these seven guys did. And then very interestingly, and I have sort of a story, and Tulika is here, who was my partner in crime back in uh, Bank of America many, many moons ago. Uh, we used to work together. Uh, it's, uh, you know, they, then they attracted a bunch of people who were, again, very different from who they were. So, and I think the, the other thing, and probably more important thing, but those who survived, and a lot of people survived but did not necessarily thrive, are, is the fact that you had a sort of a superordinate goal that you set up. We never in Infosys talked about growth, believe it or not. We never talked about being the fastest company, or the most profitable company, or the best this, that, the other. We only talked about a superordinate goal, which is very clearly defined as provide value to your clients, and an opportunity for every professional Indian to uh, a gateway for wealth creation. So which is the reason why it went public. That's why it became, you know, became more transparent. And you know the story of the ADR with, uh, with Infosys and uh, uh, little stint in Bank of America. So, you, you, so I don't know how many people here know 
of the top 100 companies in India, how many companies are there which are not either government owned or family owned? Any guesses? How many companies are the top 100? Ten. There's one. Oh my God. There's one. And you know who that one is. So, so that's the transformation that happened. So talking about uh, you know, why some companies made it, some companies didn't. So you were working with Bank of America, uh, investment banker after Ahmedabad, and then some people came up and they were trying to raise some money. Yeah. So what <clears throat> were they raising money for? Uh, yeah, so that's, that's another interesting story in terms of uh, you know, the thinking or the philosophy behind companies that really succeed, and again, sort of going back to emphasis, I should really call them up and get paid for this. But, you know, so, so young banker on a Friday afternoon, you're sitting in the office, you see your boss walking, you know, with a manila folder, what, what does a smart banker do? Puts his head down and it tries to not catch the attention, right? If you, if you ever went to school, that's exactly what you did. If the teacher had a question, you avoided uh, eye contact. Uh, but, you know, I was very poor at that. And uh, my boss shows up and says, you look Indian enough. This, uh, this is an Indian company that wants to do an ADR. So, $80 million company called Infosys, I, you know, obviously you go through the paperwork and, and, uh, and the guy tells you, take your time in coming up with the answer for it, which means Monday morning, 8 o'clock. <laughs> so, you go next, you know, on Monday morning, 8 o'clock and tell them this is complete rubbish. These guys want to raise money, $100 million, an $80 million company, they want to raise money because they want to build a campus in India. And, uh, and, and of course, at my, at my level of, uh, you know, refined uh, investment banking skills, my answer was that they should acquire a consulting firm. They want to be in the U.S. It's quite a consulting firm, and my boss, being the sage man, he was. He laughed at me and he said, "And so I said, we should not, you know, do not touch this. This is a dead asset. I know India. I'm from there." Da, da, da. <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, totally. You know, I completely agree with you. Let us uh, let us sit down with these guys." And he said, "You come along with me." I was a fly on the wall. So we sat through the management presentation that they made, and they told us the reason why they wanted uh, to uh, build a campus because that was the only tangible. Murthy and Co. wanted to invite their clients from the U.S. back to India so that in a services environment, there's nothing to really, no tires to kick. There's nothing tangible to hold. It's basically my word saying, look, I'm going to make a great pitch. Uh, hopefully, you'll buy it. And then, you know, we're going to make a leap of faith together. And that's going to happen 10,000 miles incidentally, 10,000 miles away incidentally. And it's going to happen when you're sleeping. So <laughs> imagine. Okay, cell phones weren't there at that time. Uh, the no. internet was just about coming up. It was yeah. 4.77 megahertz, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting technical. Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I know what you're talking about. You're basically getting off the phone and dropping quarters and calling your boss, should I agree to sign this deal at this particular price? But the idea behind the campus, the raising the money and building the campus was to sort of demonstrate to our clients who we were trying to sell to that by the time you take your drive from Bangalore Airport to our campus, you will see a lot of not necessarily pristine environment, but you will come to a world-class campus, which is going to be excellent in every aspect, whether it's uh, sustainability, and this is we're talking about late 90s, in terms of sustainability, in terms of architecture, in terms of convenience, in terms of space available, uh, you know, in terms of the fact that the international standard at that time was 12 by 12, uh, a cubicle. So that standard was you know, sort of researched and evaluated. Uh, yeah, so that's the story of uh, I, how I got into it, and uh, then they looked at me after a couple of conversations and said, why don't you come and join us? And I said, my experience with computers is, uh, what is that, Lotus 1, 2, 3, and uh, WordStar, you know, and the green IDMS screen, uh, if you remember from good old IBM, and uh, they said, that's the kind of people we need. We know, we know how to code. We know exactly how a computer works. 
we need somebody who can actually bridge the gap between the technology component and the problem solving. So what is the problem that people have and how do you sort of bridge that with, 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 with technology? But that was a, that's a story I, 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 I spent a lot of time. But let me, let me turn this over to you, Arjun, and I, I want to understand Mindtree. You know, obviously you can't have a conversation if you're around here without talking about Mindtree, and I'll come to the difficult question later on. But Mindtree, you are at Cambridge Technology Partners. Uh, it's a great company. Uh, uh, and then you suddenly decide to get together with sort of relatively strangers. Absolutely strangers. And uh, start a company. Uh, must have been quite a conversation that night at home. You know, uh, so one is, if I knew how tough Mindtree would be, I don't think I would have done it. <laughs> it was. But Jesse said something the other day which uh, is so true. Mind you, was one of the only companies that the bus had left. The services was, as I said, you know, if I could dumb it down by saying you needed no innovation. To, be a, to make a great services company, you needed, needed no, you didn't need to think that I need to build this product for this customer. You just needed to be a good person who was willing to work really, really hard, and you needed to pave the way. So it was relatively easier. But the bus had left after the dot-com bus. So uh, Mindtree started August of 1999. The reason Mindtree uh, was not that difficult a decision was, now, it started in August, but we decided about a year back. I was in Cambridge. You just mentioned. Uh, I had left India a while back. And I was in, always in my life, I was in the services industry. And to me, I had become an quote-unquote American. So you know, these Indians, they don't really understand business requirements. They don't understand anything. You know, they just say, OK, some Y2K stuff. OK, Infosys, okay, $68 million is their annual report. $68 million. Cambridge was $7.5 We were adding like multiple hundred million dollars of business. So sort of looked down upon it to some extent. Uh, apologies. Uh, and then, uh, but one thing I knew is that there was something wrong. You know, you see that if you feel that there is something wrong somewhere, then it is, there is something wrong. So in Cambridge, while we did very good work, it was all around software. The minimum billing rate was $1,500 an hour. A guy fresh from college, guy doesn't know anything, and it's 15, a minimum size of a project, you know, the customer opens his mouth, five million. A li little longer, seven and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I know India. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. Unfortunately, uh, internet was still sort of not that cheap. Um, if you remember, VSNL was twenty-four thousand rupees uh, 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 for for an hour. Twenty-four thousand rupees for an hour. But I knew that there was something there. And what happened is, I was in Wipro before uh, in the eighties in India, and in ninety-one India liberalized, and people from Wipro started traveling. And then Wipro was selling at about $80 a day. And here I was charging $1,500 for my junior most level. So when Mr. Premji had his annual strategy meeting, he called us, uh, called me actually for a talk on how to do consulting-based sales. And fast forward from there, Ashok Suta came along. Ashok Suta was just a phenomenal person. I learned so much from him. I just, you know, it was like he was pouring milk and I was drinking it up in terms of management skills. And he came and then we, I was a kid at that time. You know, I was, uh, we were a small group. It was, I was chronologically number three in mind. Shubhrata Bakshi, many of you might have read his book. 
uh, he communicates very well. Um, and Shubhroto, and then he brought in a guy called KK, who was the NASCOM chair. Uh, uh, KK Sundi knows all these people extremely well. And I was number three. And we wrote a business plan. And it was, I was not thinking. It was a, it was a 30 second discussion at home. Uh, because um, I knew that there was something that was going to happen. And we were fired by unbelievable passion. There was, I was just reflecting, in my mind, there was no question of failure. failure. We never thought of what will happen if you fail. And it was, how can we let, it was like a platoon, it was like a commando force. We're 10 of us, and how can anybody be hurt or fail? And the primary person in that is Ashok Sutta. So another thing that I say in, in leadership, that people work hard in companies to make their leader successful. People do, you can give them enormous amounts of money, but they'll not do. But if you, if you, can, if you can challenge them, if you can excite them, if you can uh, you know, bring passion in them, they, they do unbelievable stuff. So Ashok can't be a failure. And we never thought failure was an option. And we just did it. So it was an easy conversation. It was an easy conversation. There were many things that we did. I did a book just before Mindy was starting is that the culture of a company is built in the first 90 days of its existence, and it is very difficult to change after that. You know, I read this, and I said, my god. So in the next 90 days, we never thought of Mindtree as a small company, as a struggling company. Mindtree will be the biggest. Uh, the, that's the most successful. Uh, big was not the issue. It was business enabling, etc., whatever. And uh, uh, so first 90 days, my god, what are we going to do? But now when I think back, there were so many things we did in the first 90 days which built the culture of the company uh, to what it uh, you know, became against all odds. I absolutely, I, I, I'll take that completely because I know what the odds were. So that was a great journey. That was a great journey. Yeah, no, so, so since you brought up Mindtree and you brought up uh, uh, Mr. Sutha, it would, uh, so I'm just going to amp this conversation up a little bit, right? So I'm going to ask, uh, and I think it'll be very, uh, I think it's important to hear what, what, what actually happened, if you can, and how you sort of dealt with it. The issue at hand is uh, a set of founders fired their, and I use the word loosely, but fired their principal founder. And when does that happen? How does that happen? And how did you guys go about doing it? So, uh, so very. Uh, I, I, I'll briefly talk about the highlights. And if I may just, and I, the, I, I raise this question only because some of us, or or most of us, sometime or the other, will have that situation for us to do, or for it to happen to us. Either way. And and, and we as leaders don't see the challenges. So briefly, the facts of the case: we were ten founders, and we were brothers, and uh, uh, we were brothers. No question about it. Uh, we, for the first uh, six, seven years, we, 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 we stayed in the same, uh, we, we stayed, stayed in the, we, we didn't take different hotel rooms. Uh, we, we shared rooms. Uh-oh. Uh, we shared rooms. <laughs> <laughs> we shared rooms. Uh, there's a story. We were going IPO. We were going IPO. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we always did price line for our rooms. But we were going IPO. So these investment bankers like your ex, uh, this thing, they set up these rooms. And we went to Paris. And there was this this huge big hotel, and we came in, and uh, so two of us, uh, you know, walked in to the room, and this is a Paris hotel with people, you know, whatever it was like this top Paris hotel, and it was 
a room with uh, one king bed. <laughs> so as soon as we walked in, like there was a flutter and people said, oh my God, we're going to change it around. We said, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. And they said, oh, all right. <laughs> anyway, this was, you know how road shows are and they are you're so tired, just want to go to sleep. Anyway, so coming back, the facts of the case, and I've, I've become very, very serious right now. Uh, I'm not technically sharing anything which is not in the public domain, but to find this out, it's going to take you a lot of research. Ten of us were brothers. Uh, we went public. We started in 1999. We went public in 2007. Uh, and, uh, and, and all of that. Ashok Suta was 24 years older than I was, 15 years older than KK and Shubrato who were the next uh, you know, people. I was sort of third tier. Ashok, KK, Shubrato, myself. And uh, then uh, we were, mind you, was a struggle, was a struggle. I just come out a little bit and come back to the story. I left Mindtree in 2013 because I thought Mindtree was becoming <laughs> easy. And I like a struggle. And easy to me is when you can predict four quarters of revenue. <laughs> so predict four quarters of revenue, what's, what's left? <laughs> right? Mindtree was a struggle. So 2010, we bought a company called Kyocera Wireless. And uh, Ashok wanted to build a phone from mm -hmm. India. Uh, HTC had just uh, HTC was a white label phone manufacturer, and HTC wanted to uh, become HTC, which is, has become now. So Ashok thought that there was a space for a white label phone manufacturer in India, uh, and he was very passionate about it. And uh, it was a genuine, you know, thought. So he wanted to build a phone, and building a building a phone in services very different. So that led to some serious problems. Some serious problems. Uh, brotherhood got challenged, uh, and 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 I don't go into the gory details, but we separated. Uh, we separated. Uh, it was incredibly difficult. I can't tell you. Uh, you know, it's not that I was crying that night or that day. My children were crying. Uh, everybody was crying. Uh, how do you do that? I do believe that. Uh, here, again, I'll, I'll come back again a little more. Uh, that was grave and serious. I'll come back a little bit. The power of a good board I saw in that experience. Uh, it was all of us uh, who were all together. The board uh, the board was always there. Hey, you know, show some, uh, uh, social, show some slides, and they'll, they'll clap, and they'll go away. But you need to have a board which, is, which can be independent. It doesn't need to be independent, but can be independent if they want to be. Uh, the board really stepped in very, very well, and mentored us through a, a, a time where, mind you, definitely have died as a company. Ashok gave a very recent article uh, when Siddharth uh, episode was there that uh, you know he was thinking of selling Mindtree at that point in time. Uh, and Mindtree would have been sold for less than you know, $200 million. Uh, and today, we just got sold for $2 billion about four months back. Uh, so I, the stories I would take is, one is, whoever is your look left, Look right, look in front, with great friends. Unfortunately, life is long. And friendships do face a strain. And how will you deal with it? Don't think that things will be forever, except for your wife. Uh, <laughs> your children will not be forever, thank you God. <laughs> but that strain will come. And were we too naive to think that it will not happen? 
But I think, thankfully, we had to put a board in place. I would put 100% of the, uh, this thing on the board for taking us through this and on to the next phase of our journey. It was an extremely difficult place for us. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Nice. Uh, so, uh, uh, Ashok, you, uh, in 12 years after you joined Infosys, in 12 years you became a member of the board and the youngest non-founder, and the, the senior most non-founder. Uh, you were widely tipped to being a strong contender, contender to pick up Infosys. Uh, I, I, I mentioned before, only one company in the top 100. It was an extremely, now there are other prestigious jobs in India, that was the most prestigious job. Then you took over iGate, uh, which was a doddering company in terms of uh, both financials and otherwise. You, you, you know, walked into a fire. When you're in a company and you grow in the company, you know how the company runs, you know how everybody, I'm coming to how to do a turnaround and what are the challenges there. You just walked into a company where suddenly the CEO had left, the financials were in great shape, were not in good shape, the customers were unhappy. You walk in and everybody's a stranger there. What do you do? How do you figure out your priority? What did you do? You run back home. <laughs> so I'll tell you, you know, iGate had, uh, has an office in Edison at that time. Uh, and I, uh, so my wife Tanaz asked me, so do you, do you even know how to get to the office? Because all my life I got on bed, got to the Infosys office. And I said, now let's go for dinner. I mean, you know, you have to go to Edison, you have to have dinner. And then we looked at the office and uh, next morning I, I showed up to work. But, but you know, iGate was, so there are a couple of things that were going on in my head as I was in Infosys. One, as you said, four quarters. I mean, I knew my job in Infosys. Uh, I knew exactly what to do. By 6.30 in the morning, I'd made my calls, I was done. I knew exactly who to call, which button to press, what numbers to get, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you lose the sense of, yes, I mean, there is always this carrot uh, of, you know, you, you become the CEO of a company, but you know, a carrot is always, it's, it's accompanied by a very, very long stick and you know, and it can keep dangling there and you can keep waiting. Ultimately, if you wait long enough in a company, some invariably you become CEO. But that is not the, so I got a call from a private equity company called Apex, and they said, look, we made this, uh, we bought this company, uh, we're having challenges, we have an event that we need to do. Uh, so it was a very finite job, monetize the, the, the place, and, uh, and you could monetize this over whatever period of time you wanted, but they wanted it monetized as fast as possible, which required a, a dramatic turnaround, uh, which is why I sort of, you know, we, 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 let, you know, we sort of got the logo for the company changed and we called it Speed, Agility, and Imagination. Basically, the whole focus was speed. Got to get it done by tomorrow. And if anything had to be done by tomorrow, it needed to be get done yesterday, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Agility and Imagination, because I was going to be now selling a story that I, you're talking about transformation, and, and it is which one had to believe oneself. And coming in cold into a new place where you don't know the history, you don't know the legacy, you know it's a bunch of companies that have been brought together, and this $250 million company goes and buys a $700 million company, and there's complete loggerheads and all of that good stuff. And then there's sort of uh, unethical stuff that's happened. So you basically look at the company, and then you first and foremost convince yourself, can you do this transformation? Okay, and then sort of define it. Uh, what that transformation needs to look like and then communicate the heck out of it, right? I mean, a, a transformation at the end of the day, and since that's the topic, it, it's all about, you know, a clarity of purpose. The clarity of purpose in this particular case is we need to turn this company around. It's growing at half a percent. 
the industry is doing double digit, how do we get to at least 10% so that if there is an equity play, uh, there is an equity play to this. It is, so it had $950 million company, uh, it had a uh, billion dollars of debt uh, that, that they acquired, it had a market capital of, market capitalization of less than a billion dollars. So, so you go into a scenario like that and then you sort of, you know, you have to start making decisions, right? It's, it's should I pay down the debt? Does low debt equity give me more business? No, okay, forget the debt. And so you, you've got to move a lot of things on the chessboard to, to make that happen, but consistent. Number one is clarity. What are the three things that you need to do? What is the timeline that you need to do it? Who are the athletes that are going to be with you uh, to be able to take that journey? The second one is uh, consistency. You know, in a transformation, the way I see it, and I've, having been doing this for seven years, uh, and and uh, you, you realize that it's very, very easy to pick a bunch of topics and say we're going to do a transformation along these particular swim lanes. And then you very slowly, very quickly realize that that is not the smart thing to do because each of these swim lanes looks deserving, has a sponsor, but it's really not going to result in either the speed, the agility, or the imagination, or the monetization of it. I mean, I always say that you know the CEO's job is, is you know, our job is you walk in, into a new company, it's a dark room. You take out a flashlight, you, you put, you switch on the flashlight, you see something, and that's the shiny object that you go after. But you don't realize, or you should realize, that the rest of the room is in darkness. Which, as a CEO, is you, you sort of think, okay, I'm highly focused, and I know exactly what to do, blah, 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 I'm gonna cut cost here, I'm gonna shut that business down, we're gonna, like we did in Condo in 65 countries, to five countries, etc., etc. And then you suddenly realize that you're so caught up in that light that you have shown, which you believe, no other knowledge, no legacy, no, no sort of understanding of the, the, the culture of the place, but you left the, left the rest of the room in darkness, and that's where the games begin to happen. And that's why communication becomes extremely important, because you have to keep reminding yourself and the rest of the community, which is you know, your shareholders, your uh, clients, uh, your uh, employees, and the community at large the single-minded purpose of why this is being done. And most importantly, you have to convince yourself. Because a CEO gets uh, kind of lonely. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, the only person that uh, in our house uh, who awaits my coming back at the end of a long day stop. So everybody else is, everybody else is a long, you know, has, got, has got a life of it. Oh, so only the dog is happy to see, oh, this guy's back again. <laughs> so that is, that is an important uh, part of, uh, you know, understanding that you sort of remind the ecosystem. And then there's consistency. So it's clarity, it's consistency, and it's communication. Communication is just over-communicate. Because people lose their way even if they know why it's being done, your, your senior management team, people that who have been journeymen with you, journeywomen with you, for periods of time, will forget why we are, because I've had situations where we've had off-sites and people have looked at me you know, in, in fireside chats where they have said, why are we doing this again? And why are we doing this again needs to be responded to again and again, no matter and I always used to feel, but I just told you guys. I mean, you know, when I hired you, I told you, the appraisal I told you, last week, you know, board meeting I told you, you gotta do that. And to your point about the board, the board needs to understand. Now, being on, on public boards myself, you have uh, literally, your memory is like the half-life of a boss. I mean, you know, your board meeting is over, you had a good dinner, you're gone, you never remember that again. But the board needs to be told, the board needs to be reminded because, and the board is actually a great, like you, you, like you said, a great, uh, uh, platform, if you will, of a sounding board 
to sort of better reflect what your thoughts, etc., are. And therefore, picking the board uh, is, I mean, as you guys build your companies and as you know, as you grow and all of that stuff, and some of you already have it, picking board members usually, uh, in my experience, uh, you know, is being friends, family, etc. But picking a board, in my opinion, is probably the most important thing that you can do as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Let me share one experience of mine. Sure. I'd love to get your feedback and love to take any questions also. So, walking into a new company where you know one of the biggest disadvantages of walking into a new company is that you walk in the corridor and you don't know that there's a superstar guy who just walked past you. If this was Infosys or Mindtrade, I would know the guy and say, hey, guy, you know, do you remember that stuff we did five years back and stuff like that? And this guy thinks, hey, this is the CEO of the company. He doesn't even know who I am. He doesn't know how important I am. So you brought up the issue of values and mission and vision and stuff like that. I'll give you an experience. I walked into a company, and literally on the second day, I got the 15 senior most people in the company together. And I asked them, I didn't tell them why uh, I called them. A new senior, you just, whoever you call, everybody shows up. You know. uh, so I uh, said, can you tell me what the mission of the company is? Write on a piece of paper. And where does the company want to be in four years' time? And everybody diligently you know, wrote down the mission and the vision of the company. Fifteen of the senior most people in the company. And there were 15 completely different <laughs> statements. One said we'll be a product company, one said we will be only in cloud services, one said this, one said it was completely different. And uh, so in that case, it was an extreme case where it was probably not even well defined. But even if it is defined, people don't know how to make any sense of it. And the job is to just constantly, 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 you get sick and tired of saying it, but every time you have to say it as if it's the first time. I'll give one more quick story and then I'll come back. Uh, this was in Mindtree, we had a big sales presentation going on. And uh, this was a very large company which had come. And we were talking about our culture and our values and how we are all together, etc. So the CIO says, hey, hold on one second. So all the people, we were 25 of us in the room. Uh, remember those meetings where everybody was there? So 25 people in the room, the CIO, their henchmen, everybody there. CIO suddenly says, hey, just, you guys go on, I'm, I'm just going to be back, okay? And it's, this was a lady, and she walks off and comes back after 15 minutes. And the uh, meeting is going on, but she was the big boss, so it was sort of not going on. <laughs> so she comes back. We thought she's gone for a phone call or something. She said, you know what? It's okay. What, is, what you guys are saying is all right. So what She went out, and she just caught people in the corridor. She, she took the elevator, went to different floors, and said, what's your mission of the company? What's the mission of the company? Why do you work in this company? And one of the things that one guy said to her, and I still remember, she said, why do you like working for Mindtree? He said, you're talking of transparency. He says, I like working for Mindtree because the management shares information with me that they do not need to share. So uh, that guy felt included as part of the company. So culture and values and communication becomes uh, a rally cry. And coming back to my opening question was why did some companies do well and why did some companies not do well? One of the feelings I have, and I would love to get perceptions from people around, is that people just didn't communicate why they are in that business. Mm -hmm. If the purpose of that business is to produce 15% EBITDA, that company will never survive. 
But that purpose, like Infosys, is to change social governance, uh, corporate governance. Uh, and, and those become important. Why are you in business? Uh, you, know, you know, Google's uh, said whatever, uh, Microsoft said computer on every desktop. Uh, and that purpose becomes very, very important. If that, and that purpose needs to be communicated ad nauseum. Yeah. Ad nauseum. Uh, I think that's uh, my perspective. So it's also a recruitment tool. You know, as I was saying earlier, a superordinate goal, which is way, goes way beyond profitability, sales growth, your bonus, your compensation. There has to be a superordinate goal that attracts people. Like, like you said, a lot of people actually work to, to pay their bills. But they come to work also to be inspired, to be motivated, yeah, to the point that you know people work for people, and people don't leave companies. People leave bosses. People leave bad bosses. I mean, you know, everybody. And my personal belief is everybody gets up in the morning to do a great day's job. Two people come in the way. One, of course, is traffic in Jersey, and the other is uh, your boss. If your boss is not inspiring you or motivating you, there is no reason why she needs to come back to work. And I think that sort of superordinate, superordinate aspiration and ambition you know values mission if any company that you look at whether we were doing the you know value statement for iGate or for conduit you know you you, you search on the internet what is the best one pick one from here and there are companies that do that you know but trust me there are companies that actually will call you and say what do you want to sound like uh, so authenticity and living the values Living and the, uh, the authentic values is very very important you can say we want to be da 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 and you know we, we believe in, in emancipation of let's say you know diversity of uh, by gender, and then you go to their uh, executive committee page, boom. <laughs> so what happened? How do you translate one from the other? So that is a, living the value system and sort of practicing that and holding people accountable. I'll give you an example about emphasis. I think one of the things very early on they said we will live the values. And no matter who that person is, no matter how important that person is, if there has been a value system violation, both. And that was, I mean, you know, Infosys was a very big debating club. You basically sat and debated everything. Anything and everything that was done was done as a consensus. Now, consensus also means compromise in a certain way because, you know, you've got to get that guy's input, this guy's input, and sort of do something. But it was effective in that every person, like you said, felt a part of the company, participated. I don't think anybody spent any time in looking at the ADR. When we listed in 99 March, we listed at, uh, you know, some of you probably remember, it's better than 36, 37 bucks. By the summer of that year, we were $600. Yeah. This was the time when you could uh, open a company called you know, petmypet.com uh, or, or, or some, something of that sort, you know, wear my shoes today, you know, pinksocks.com, etc. So that was the euphoria. It came down, but and then we actually hired a firm to tell us how many people actually you think leave as a result of the stock price coming down. And, you know, I like a lot of consultants. I'll give you the answer that you want. So we call that Boston. Take this to the board. This is exactly what you're saying. No, honestly, they actually there was nobody who actually said they were leaving because of this. Like this Sochcast? Tune in for more with the Sochcast app from the Google Play Store. I think values and culture. Any any questions? Uh, uh, yeah, just question on uh, corporate governance because yeah, both of you touched on that quite a bit. So um, you know when we talk to U.S. based companies and um, uh, you know, there's no question. They know the talents available in India. 
A lot of the companies want to establish a partnership with a company in India or invest in a company. Talent, um, the drive, you know, all that is a given. Um, but the big hang-up is corporate governance with the companies in India, you know. If things hit the fan, you know, will the board be able to control the situation, you know? How do we trust, you know, the diligence been done? So, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, much recently, you know, people here are not naive. I mean, they, they look at the Wall Street Journal, they see that, oh, Tata Sons, corporate governance, you know. Infosys also had some big, you know, at the board level issues. So the stars of Indian companies have these, you know, issues. So how would a private company or a, you know, middle market listed company, you know, not have a good, you know, there, there's some concerns with American companies partnering with Indian companies on the corporate governance. So, you know, from your experience beyond, you know, public boards, what are the key things we look for a board, board of an Indian company and vice versa, you know, you know just, you know, companies here too. What should we look for when we partner with other companies at the board level? And if I'm an entrepreneur and if I want to set up a board, what should I look for in prospective board members? Yeah, that's a great question. Do you want to give it a shot? So, uh, so clearly there is a sort of a question mark that hangs over uh, Indian corporations, especially from a governance perspective. And there's, I mean, if you if you really, it's only now that there are rules in terms of tenure uh, of board members. Earlier, it was you could be a you could call yourself an independent board member, but you actually were uh, an insider because you've been on the board for 20 years uh, for public companies. Uh, a lot of companies in India still, they call themselves public, uh, but their shareholding is not very uh, widely distributed, if you will. It's still very promoter-centric, uh, which is why if you look at Indian corporations, the promoter plays a very important role in terms of establishing they travel uh, to the markets, they travel to see, meet the clients, they, they spend a lot of time, an ordinary amount of time in bringing board members. So I would, you know, to your point, if you're looking to partner with a company in India, definitely if it's a large public company, you need to look at the board, how many of those board members are in different types of boards, are they on the board because, you know, they are from a bank and now they're retired. So, you know, how many of them are act active executives who can bring that fresh perspective in, and as well as, well as how many international people People, if you're in the U.S., how many people from the U.S. actually have done enough due diligence? Because if I join the board of a public company, you know, uh, there's a battery of legal expertise that you bring to bear because you know it's your reputation online and so on and so forth. So you you've got to look at that. I think from a governance perspective, uh, you know, boards are. Uh, if you are looking to hire board members, definitely you need somebody uh, who can call out your BS for one. I mean, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you, you, you're full of ideas. And obviously, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur, I'm sort of an inside corporate entrepreneur. Uh, but you uh, have to have that arrogance and conviction that your ideas are right. Otherwise, you will never be, uh, never want to venture out on your own. You just, you know, apply for a job and do that. Uh, so you have to have somebody who can look past that, look beyond that, and say, okay, I call this BS out, I don't think it's. And you have to have those people who can. Uh, sort of bridge the aspiration with the, the practical and say, okay, what time frame are you doing this in? Everybody thinks that they have, you know, the next best idea, they're going to do the variable and, you know, uh, I was talking to this company that makes uh, prosthetics. And they're building AI and machine learning because the brain after a while, you know, doesn't know that if you've lost a limb, the brain doesn't know that you've lost a limb, so you try to bring a stick and hit that, the brain winces. And after a while, the brain does not get the neural response. It sort of becomes like an appendix. You say, okay, there's nothing happening here. I'm not getting a neural response. 
and then it sort of switches off, which means other, so your, your balance, your gait, and you know, all, all of that comes in, begins to uh, impact you. So, so you, you've got to have somebody who can actually say that this is a great idea, but it's not going to make any money. Or this is a great idea, but it's not going to go to market next year. So you could go and make a pitch to the investors and talk to them about all these kind of things, and they may buy your story. In reality, it's not going to happen. So you need to have board members who can call that up. If you're a public company, you definitely need to focus on things. You need to bring in people who understand cyber risk, which is, which is, and I'm on the uh, Cyber Risk Director Network. I mean, there's like 30 of us from public uh, company boards. And all we do is talk about the threat of cybersecurity, which is huge. And, you know, in Conduit, we ran a payment business. We did about $750 billion, yeah, $750 billion of payments business. So every time you, 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 every time you get a ticket, now don't kill me, in New Jersey for a red light, that's me. Every time you go through a uh, Holland Tunnel, that's me. So Kaching, thank you for traveling so much. But the important thing is that has implications for GDPR, which is completely outside. So somebody in, in the board, in our board, that actually has European experience and payments expertise. So you are a guy who comes from Europe, you rent a Hertz car, you have a credit card that's a European card, you, you do a traffic violation, or your card gets uh, a compromise, for GDPR, you're liable. One-fourth of your company is liable. So there are these sort of boards, essentially, they have a fiduciary responsibility, but boards, most importantly, they're looking for people are those who need to look out for black swan events. What is, or, or, or basically look for events that have a very, very low probability of happening, but and if that event happens, the impact of that is, think somebody saying on 9-10 that we should block the uh, cockpit doors. Just so, so, you know what I mean. Questions, anybody? Yeah. yeah. Just, just to follow up on your point, sure. So, how does one choose a board member? Is it about have they been successful entrepreneurs, or is it about are they in your domain? Just to go with your point, like they should be able to call your BS, right? Well, what do they call your BS because they don't know what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's no, a great point. So I'm on the board of Kroger, which is a uh, super Fortune 17 super uh, market grocery store, etc. My board actually asked me to uh, go onto that uh, company's board as a development opportunity. I know nothing about grocery. I don't even do grocery. Uh, there is a company called Amazon that has this delivery. <laughs> <laughs> right? So yeah, there's an app, and you just say bananas by tomorrow morning, and the bananas show up. Uh, it's a huge, it's, it's a, you know, people, I, so I bring a technology sort of a background to that board. You need to bring perspectives. And when I say BS, I don't want to sort of trivialize that. The point is that you should be able to call out or put a contrarian view. A supermarket like Kroger, I mean, and I'm not spilling anything, it's, it's, it needs to understand the impact of, you know, Amazon. Understand the impact of a company like Blue Apron. So understand the changes that are happening, what the difference between a micro delivery site and the fact getting your food or your grocery same day is huge. I sat in my first Kroger board meeting and we had a presentation on grapes. <laughs> it's a $14 billion business. <laughs> right? So, and then I was like, what am I doing here with the grapes? And they were like, you know, I've, I've got grapes coming out of my head during all my years. <laughs> but this is a fascinating story about grapes in terms of supply chain, in terms of sustainability, which is, I mean, you, you know, how are these grapes grown? What's the chemical that's being used? And its implications 
across the different people. And the board has people who are from the chemical industry. The board has people from uh, food sustainability, from the government. So all kinds of people need to sort of come together. I hired a board. Uh, so in, in Carduent, I had uh, uh, some of you may be familiar with this name. Carl Icahn was an activist who got into my uh, it was much warmer then. Uh, and I had four board members that I brought it. And I brought one with a, somebody who had been a journeyman with me in a previous company, uh, the chairman of Deloitte. Then I brought one from the government business, somebody who had been chief of personnel at uh, George H.W. Bush's government, because we did a ton of government work. I brought in the mayor of, uh, former mayor of Philadelphia, uh, because he was a street fighter. And somebody I knew in a street fighter, I mean, if you're the mayor of Philadelphia, you can imagine. A, <laughs> and for all due apologies to our neighbors across, but if you're the mayor of Philadelphia, you, need, you better know how to street fight. So we needed a street fighter. And the fourth person we brought in was somebody from Wabba Pinkers, just to have a face-off against uh, you know, the finance types from Carlisle's group. But that's what you look for. And, you may, you, and you're allowed to make mistakes. And you should know when that mistake happens. So I asked the question about Mr. Sutha, is that you have to be able to, uh, in your own head, be convinced of the fact that if there, if there is a, something that you've done in the wrong hire, just like you do for an employee, you do the same for the board. I, I hope that sort of answers. Is it just as a follow-up, sorry, more of a question to Sunil and to Jesse as well. As Thai attendees or members, do we have access to to say that I need a group of board members for this particular venture that I'm doing? Do we have that? Uh, no. Thai does not do that. Thai is not a facilitator. It's a body that actually helps you educate, which is what we are getting here. Um, you know, you can find mentors, but you basically provide you with a platform where you can actually find mentors, but you have to go connect and the mentors want to be working with you because, you know, just because you want someone to be mentored, you may not be the best mentee for them. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, obviously for networking as well. So it's more of a platform as compared to actually a formal, like a, a speaker bureau or a board bureau. Uh, Ty does not do that. We have about 10 minutes left. Uh, question. Yeah, question. Uh, the challenge of managing the board and the internal forces, technology, your own team members, and then the marketplace by itself is quite daunting. Then how do you manage these uh, activist investors who have their own agenda, who come in the way, who, uh, sometimes they help you, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they are counteractive. How do you manage them once they are in? Yeah, so Raj, I, I, you know, an activist is something that we all now have to sort of live with. Uh, Increasingly, because I think expectations with regard to what your uh, uh, share price and the returns. I mean, if you look at the market, it's, it's about for the P of about eight, 17, 18, and look at any of these companies, they are they are in the 80. I mean, look at Tesla or something. Comes down by 100 bucks today, and it's not even a scratch. It goes right back up. I mean, so it, it, it's I mean, you're living in one of those, as uh, Greenspan would say, highly euphoric uh, times. You know, it's uh, I think the, the tide will go out, and then we'll see who, how how what they're bearing while swimming. But having said that, you have to take the activist head on. This is no way you can duck that. You know, the activist sends you a letter, you take that, sends it to the board and sends it to the CEO. They make it very personal uh, and they come right at you. And uh, you show, my personal experience, you show any sign of fear, you finish. You don't show any sign of fear, you're still finished. <laughs> but you could be finished. 
but uh, usually, my experience, whether it's Elliot uh, in my past life or Carl this time, uh, they look for an asset that has amazing number of inconsistencies. It's underperforming. So if you've gotten into the ice, you know, in the range of an icon, you really need uh, an actress, excuse me. You really need to do a lot of introspection as to what's happening in the company. It's a good time to make uh, do a spin-off. It's a good time to sort of level yourself up. It's a good time to make some, you know, arbit public statement that we're going to save seven hundred million dollars of cost. Uh, and stuff like that, because that's where they're going after. Uh, but you cannot escape them. So the only way you sort of escape them is by not by being consistent and sort of evaluate your company to the point that you know exactly that there are no inconsistencies. Let's try to get a few questions in. So well, great insights. First of all, thank you both here for first of all your amazing success. So congratulations to both of you. But uh, you know, my question is basically fundamental. So you know. The question that you asked, Anjan, was you had thousands of companies that Petri Dish in 1999, so we were one of them. <laughs> and uh, they were doing all kinds of different things, but there were only few that emerged, right? And that actually, I've also thought about that a lot, and it's really not easy to answer that question. Uh, but you know, when I think about it, in retrospect, a lot of things become obvious. And one of the things that became obvious to me was Y2K, of course. Was the Y2K and the internet was the killer application for India to emerge, right? Definitely the fact that in 97, Infosys had this massive number of people trained on solving this problem. They were at the right place at the right time. I, I feel that. That's definitely. Yeah, it's a long conversation. I would argue with that because that means that means that companies no, no, could no, only have started at. No, 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 no. So in some so what I no my, my so to cut a long story short, I guess you're saying. You know, I always used to say, why aren't these companies focused on products rather than services? And it looked like services was the right business model for India at that time. Mm -hmm. And you know, products would have been too early. That is, that, that is true. I absolutely agree. But what I'm asking is, was there a reasoning in within your company? This is because I never talked to somebody at the top from Infosys or Mindtree, so this would be a good good opportunity for me to find out. I always used to push because I knew the founders of Mastec. Mastec, of course, was another company, not Mastec Pittsburgh, but Mastec India. You know, the founders were actually classmates, and they were focused on products. And I always used to tell them, you know, there's a great opportunity for services. Why don't you guys focus on services? And they said, no, 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 we don't want to be a body shop. And you know, so they denied those opportunities and they didn't succeed as it was pride. If you ask me, it was pride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pride was not the right thing. Not the right Pride is never the right thing. So what I'm trying to ask you was, and of course, you know, they still became a big company, but not as big as Infosys. Mastic was Mastic, you know, you know, you know, Sudhakar and Sundar and Ketan and all these guys. I know them very well. In fact, you know, we had early lot of brainstorming sessions, just like you guys had in those days. And I used to tell them, "Hey, there's huge opportunities. Why don't you guys go after services?" They did. But anyway, so my question is, what was the thinking within your company? That's all I wanted to. Yeah. So let, let me give it a shot, and then maybe you can. So Sorry I, for the long question. No, 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 no worries. I mean, you know, it's, it's it's actually a great question. So we debated a lot about products because you know, product has a higher intellectual connotation than a service. So everybody wanted to move. We had a banking product, etc. The concern with products is it's IP driven. And very few companies out uh, in uh, the markets we wanted to serve in the US uh, really thought that the IP 
was uh, something that was uh, intellectual property really belonged to the company coming out of India. Mm -hmm. That was one. Second one, it's a harder sell. If I need to sell you a product, I need to know the problem it's solving. I need to know how it's solving it. And I need, so let's take a fixed income platform, right? Now I need to know what, everything about fixed income, so I need to have a higher level of domain con capability. I need to know a lot more about technology. Why yours, why not Pega, this, that, the other. So that's the second part, it's a harder sale. Uh, it's a longer sales cycle. And you don't have credibility to come in and say you're a product company, when, as it is you're coming and you're coming from somewhere else and you want to. So you, you, you are, you're a stranger, you're fresh off the board, and you're trying to sell, what is the quickest and fastest way, what can you sell? The quickest and fastest thing to sell is bodies. Right. And then you sort of evolve from the bodies and say, so, so P to P into Q becomes a little more sophisticated. And that value system actually moves. What you see today as platforms, and you, you see uh, more IP-led sales, and, and prior to that was consulting. So there's an evolution here, right? Uh, warm bodies, services, uh, you saw consulting, because there's another way of, smart way of saying bodies. Then you say uh, uh, application platforms, et cetera, and then sort of, sort of product evolution. So if you look at the paradigm, I would actually say products are on one extreme end, a difficult end to bridge, and you don't necessarily, the evolution does not require you to reach there, because today you have, you know, you can plug and play a lot of things. No, but, we'll but, we'll, but, we'll, we'll just uh, squeeze in a couple of questions. Yeah. We want to take this yeah. a little bit. Hi, mine is a little bit of a futuristic question. By the way, great presentation. Wonderful Thank to you. hear you. you. Um, what about future CEOs? You see VWork. You see all the things happening in the, in the country these days. I'm a really young startup CEO now, and I'm thinking, is CEO the right place to be? Or should you be thinking as a company goes, find your own spot and let somebody else do this because it seems like you can never be perfect. You can never reach the level let, that you expect. Let, let me take that question. So according to a study in Harvard Business School, yeah. if any, uh, many people in this room will not uh, like my answer, but if any company which was started and has the same CEO after five years, they're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So if you if that's a, that, that's an answer, you know. But I'll say exception. Facebook is an exception. Yes, really. Yeah. So a quick thing. I know you guys have uh, uh, grown with a private company and then grown public. So I want to understand what your thought process in terms of behavior, in terms of outreach, culture, all those things you need to transform to, from a private to a public. So so. Yeah, so Infosys was public in India before I joined it, but we, took, we did the ADR here. Uh, iGate was also public. Uh, and we did a conduit IPO after we spun off in January of 2017. Uh, it was a division, so it was a private company. The, there is a tremendous amount of culture. So the thing that you get when you become a public company, of course, your report card gets read out to you every 90 days. So you have, that's good, and that's bad because in your investment, thesis sort of gets limited that you need, to, I need to go in front of the market, so guys, what are you talking about? The ROI on this is four years, forget about it. So you have that problem, which is good in the private market. The second, the good, the other good thing is that this transparency creates a culture of discipline. It creates a, a culture where you sort of stick to what you say and you don't get any surprises. I mean, yeah, you get surprises, which everybody does, but so you sort of, sort of create the systems, processes, uh, and the, the infrastructure, if you will, to sort of cater to that. Again, uh, I am not necessarily a big proponent of public companies. I am because it creates transparency. It creates a, a sort of a, 
it takes away the asymmetry in terms of information. Every information essentially anyway at the end of the day is asymptotic, so you're never going to get the right picture, but it removes the asymmetry, which is important because an investor, a shareholder is as important a stakeholder as your employees or clients. So I, I would say this, there is, uh, when you make that shift, systems, process, culture, language, behavior, some good, some bad, all of them change, or need to change, otherwise, uh, you, know, you, you cannot do that after you go away. All of this is a pre-IPO stuff. Yeah, it's, it's not just about trying to, you know, the most exciting part about the IPO is actually the worst thing, where you sit down to actually price the IPO. And some of you must have done this. It's great fun because you come in and say, oh, yeah, I think we should be listing at 65. The banker looks at you and says, yeah. How did you come up with that number? <laughs> No, no, because my, my friend's company listed. Only one comment I'd make is a well-run private company and a well-run public company characteristics are pretty much the same. Exactly. Pretty much the same. You're not going to become, make a private, take a private company public unless it already has the characteristics of, because it's a very, very tough hill to climb. Um, and we have time for just one more question. We just had the great success on the achievements of the two Indian ethnic origin CEOs. And there's a whole wave of communication where WeWork is having a new Indian CEO, yeah. and so does the idea. Great time to be an Indian. <laughs> so, what do you see the future and uh, opportunity for the Indian ethnicity CEOs and how they are going global? Well, I think we. So, before he says that, you know, Carl, I can personally call him when he was enjoying his time with his family and asked him to join. And he became the CEO of a $7 billion company, one of the top Indian CEOs in the country, actually. Well, he actually did me a favor because my wife told me that, you know, I married you for love, not lunch. So <laughs> get out of the house and get a job. Is, I, I have a feeling that that day is coming pretty soon. But I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a great time. I think we also have to remember these kind of platforms, and I didn't realize the extent and depth, and I think, Jesse, thank you for articulating the mentorship, the network. And the ability to sort of you know learn uh, uh, this, these kind of platforms are very important for. I think we've been as a community, uh, people of Indian ethnicity have been very very successful. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know in, in the fields of education for a very long time, uh, business for a very long time. Now increasingly in policy making and in, in government and politics, which is very very critical. Uh, I have been to Washington multiple times, and if you look at the interns that are there who staff the senators, of course we have congressmen, senators, etc. The number of kids who are doing this, young 23, 24 year old, uh, and I sort of hope my daughter takes that route, is unbelievable. And so they have, they're born and brought up here, but they have sort of a relate, they, they sort of understand because their parents, you know, jumped off the boat around the same time that we did, or earlier or later, but they have a great sense of the bridge between it. Uh, and I think if I just look at I mean, this room and other people that I have met, I mean, it's Shantanu, Satya, I mean, you know, uh, Krishna and IBM, and all these guys, I mean, a significant amount of confidence and trust to the point I'm beginning to worry in American companies and travel are going to only find Indian CEOs. <laughs> uh, I'm going to close with this. I recently met a very large company which has not a single Indian. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar company and reached out to me saying, all that I want is, I want to change my entire management to Indian people. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have any business with India, he doesn't have any business in India. <laughs> yeah. I, want to, I, I want Indians. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I know my job is to convince him that, you know, he needs to, <laughs> to, to show him that he was not doing the right thing. Anyways, yeah. we are out of time, we can continue with this thing. Sibi, can I hand it back to you to just 
close up and wind up. <laughs>